This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, Step Monsters, I share cases of step families gone bad. In this episode, a six-year-old girl living in the UK is abused by her stepmother and neglected by her father. Teachers, neighbors, and social workers attempted to intervene, but in the end, the systems that should have stepped in to save the child all failed her. How could so many people be aware of what was happening and yet the child not be removed from her abusive home? This case is as infuriating as it is heartbreaking. Just a warning, there will be descriptions in this episode regarding the abuse of a child. If you are particularly sensitive to this topic, please use discretion before listening. This is Chapter 2 of the series Step Monsters, Tracy Wright. It was Saturday, May 6, 2000, and Christine Wright was at her home in the small village of Welney, located on the Norfolk-Cambridgeshire border. At around noon, there was a pounding at her door. Opening it, she found her daughter-in-law, Tracy, frantically calling for help. Tracy lived next door with her husband, Craig, Christine's 38-year-old son. Tracy and Craig had been married for less than a year. Tracy was a single mother of two when she met Craig. Craig's six-year-old daughter, Lauren, became her stepdaughter and had served as a tiny bridesmaid at her father and stepmother's July wedding. Now Tracy was screaming that something was wrong with Lauren. Alarmed, Christine and her two adult daughters, Dawn and Vicky, raced next door. Tracy told them that the little girl was upstairs in her bedroom. They rushed up to her while Tracy remained downstairs in the living room and continued to scream hysterically. They found Lauren lying on top of the bed. She was on her back with her arm hanging down stiffly off of the bed. She was unconscious and a foul-smelling foam and liquid was coming out of her nose and mouth. Christine called 911 and told the dispatcher that her granddaughter was seriously hurt and appeared not to be breathing. The dispatcher told the grandmother to start CPR and gave instructions. Meanwhile, Vicky rushed to a nearby pub, where Craig was supposed to be, according to Tracy, and told him to hurry home. As Christine pulled up the little girl's shirt to start chest compressions, she noticed bruising all over her body. She asked Tracy what had happened to Lauren. Tracy said that the little girl had climbed up a heavy wardrobe and it had fallen on her. The paramedics arrived and assessed Lauren's condition. There was no sign of life, and they quickly realized that she had passed some time earlier. Rigor mortis had already begun to set in. A post-mortem examination was performed to determine what had killed the child. It was discovered that Lauren Wright had over 60 bruises on her body, covering her shoulders, arms, cheek, chest, and abdomen. She had 19 bruises alone on her legs and shins that appeared to have been made by kicks or blows with an object. She was also extremely thin, and there were signs that the child had suffered from malnutrition. Her hair was falling out. But the most serious injury the one that had killed Lauren, was a vicious blow to her stomach region that had caused her digestive tract to collapse. 
The medical examiner concluded that the little girl's injuries were so numerous and traumatic that they were akin to those a road accident victim might suffer. It was immediately apparent that Lauren Wright had been subjected to ongoing abuse. Her stepmother's explanation could only be described as a lie, most likely to cover her own culpability. Investigators began to look closely at the life of Lauren Wright and the history of her family. Lauren Victoria Wright's life was one of hardship from the time of her birth. She was born on July 16, 1993, in Hertfordshire. Her parents had only dated for a brief time before Jennifer Bennett discovered she was pregnant with Craig Wright's child. She wasn't happy about the pregnancy from the beginning, and when she informed Craig that he was going to be a father, his immediate reaction was to demand a blood test before accepting the fact that the child was his. Jennifer raised Lauren by herself until she was three years old. Jennifer was neglectful and verbally abusive to her daughter. Craig rarely saw his daughter, and Jennifer tried to coerce Craig into taking Lauren off her hands by, at times, telling him she would hit the child if he didn't come and take her. Craig was an auto mechanic, and rather than finding a suitable babysitter, brought the toddler to his unsafe workplace, leaving her to fend for herself in a cold garage while he worked. Craig spent his free time at local pubs, and sometimes he brought the little blonde-haired girl along. At times, he became so intoxicated that he would forget all about his daughter. She was left behind at the pub several times. The one bright spot in the little girl's life was spending time at her grandmother's house. Christine Wright lived in Three Holes, Norfolk. Lauren's grandmother and her two daughters, Dawn and Vicky, owned and operated the Red Heart Pub. Lauren stayed at her grandmother's on the weekends, and her grandmother and aunts gave Lauren the love and attention she didn't receive from her own parents. Lauren's aunt Dawn recalled the three-year-old on a phone call with her mother, asking, Do you still love me, Mommy? Lauren's face showed hurt and bewilderment when Jennifer answered, No, I hate you. However, Jennifer still had legal custody of her daughter, and in May of 1997, she and her boyfriend at the time went on a vacation to Turkey. Jennifer took Lauren along, as well as three of her other children. Lauren was always treated as a burden by her mother, and this trip was no exception. Jennifer was verbally abusive to her daughter throughout the trip. Then, incredibly, Jennifer dumped the four-year-old at the British consulate. She scratched Lauren's name and photo off of her passport and returned to the UK without the child. Jennifer's boyfriend contacted Lauren's grandmother, Christine, leaving it up to her to coordinate efforts to have her granddaughter returned home. Christine and Lauren's father met the tiny child at the airport. After this blatant neglect by her mother, Lauren's grandmother and father filed for legal custody. Lauren was then placed on the Child Protection Registry in Hertfordshire, classified as an at-risk child. She remained on the registry from July of 1997 to January of 1998, while her case wound itself through the legal system. Her father and grandmother were granted temporary custody of Lauren in May of 1997. Finally, in February of 1998, Christine was granted a residence order allowing Lauren to live with her permanently. Lauren lived with her grandmother from January through May of 1998, the most stable and happy period of her young life. 
but her grandmother's business went under, and in late 1998, Lauren was relocated to Welney to live with her father. Soon, her grandmother joined them, and they all moved to a new residence at Number 10 Chestnut Avenue in Welney. Lauren was enrolled in Sir William Marshall Elementary School. A 30-year-old single mother of two, named Tracy Scarf, worked at the school as a lunchtime playground assistant. She also lived next door to the Wrights at Number 9 Chestnut. Craig and Tracy began seeing each other, and within a few months, Craig moved into Tracy's house, bringing his daughter with him. Tracy and her children's father had never married. After he left her for another woman, Tracy raised her six-year-old daughter and nine-year-old son as a single mother. Tracy was described as a dominant woman who was brash and short-tempered. As a mother, she spent much of her time yelling at her children and had little patience. Within six months of dating Craig Wright, the couple decided to marry. Lauren, at first, was excited about the wedding and having a new mom and siblings. She served as a bridesmaid at the wedding, sobbing with emotion when her father and Tracy said their vows. She immediately started calling her new stepmother, Mum. Perhaps she believed that she would finally have a mother who would love and care for her. Sadly, she was very mistaken. Lauren's life was about to go from bad to worse. Instead of gaining a loving parent, Tracy Wright would personify the stereotype of an evil stepmother. Craig Wright married Tracy Scarf in July of 1999. By the fall of that year, teachers and neighbors would notice a change in the once chubby, happy little girl. Lauren, by all accounts, was a sweet child, always ready with a smile for everyone. Although she had been ignored and verbally abused by the people who were supposed to love her the most, she remained hopeful and good-natured. Perhaps because she'd been shown little kindness since her birth, she was eager to earn any shred of love and attention she could. Lauren, now five years old, moved in with her new stepmom and two step-siblings. When Tracy married Craig Wright, she probably looked forward to having a partner to help her raise her children— she had been a single mom and was solely responsible for providing and caring for her two children. But if she thought her workload would become lighter, she was mistaken. Craig Wright, still employed as a mechanic, left for work early each morning and came home late. Lauren rarely saw her father. Most of the time, she was already in bed when he returned. Craig spent most evenings in the pub, and on the weekends, he headed out alone to the river for a day of fishing. Craig left his new wife with all the responsibility of running the home and caring for the children, including his own daughter. Before long, Tracy began to resent her stepdaughter and took out her frustration and unhappiness on Lauren. Lauren was treated as a burden by yet another adult in her life. Tracy began ignoring the little girl. While her own children were given occasional treats and gifts, Lauren got nothing. Neighbors began to witness Tracy's poor treatment of her stepdaughter, Lauren was made to walk at a distance behind Tracy and her children on the way to and from school or errands. Although her stepbrother and sister were both older than Lauren, she was made to carry their book bags as well as her own. One rainy day, a neighbor noticed Tracy and her children walking together under an umbrella while Lauren walked behind, alone, getting drenched. They also saw that Lauren's clothes were often ill-fitting and in poor condition, while Tracy's own children were dressed nicely. Lauren also began to lose weight rapidly and took on a sallow complexion. 
Then people started to notice the bruises. In January, her teachers noticed a marked change in the little girl. Lauren was not the bouncy, bubbly girl she used to be, but now seemed tired and exhibited low energy. They also saw some bruising on her arms and legs. Two teachers at the school, Ann Wynn and Jasmine Golson, spoke with Tracy Wright about their observations. Tracy said that Lauren was getting over an illness, which explained her lethargy. To explain the bruises, Tracy told them that another child had been bullying Lauren on the playground and pushed her around. They believed Tracy's account since she was the school's playground monitor and was privy to these types of incidents. But at home, Tracy had started physically taking out her anger at Lauren. She began hitting her with her hands and other objects. Since Tracy was easily able to explain away Lauren's injuries to others, the abuse of her stepdaughter escalated. She began using her fists and also kicking her. A neighbor would later report watching from his window as Tracy walked past, and he witnessed her punch the little girl in the head so hard it knocked her down. Tracy continued walking, and Lauren, dazed for a moment, got up and ran down the street to catch up with her stepmother. The witness said it, quote, made him sick to his stomach to see, but also didn't report it because he didn't want to get involved. Whenever she was questioned, Tracy always had a ready excuse for Lauren's condition. Although Lauren's grandmother, Christine, lived next door, she saw her granddaughter infrequently after Craig married Tracy. Christine got a new job and worked long hours. One day, she saw Lauren and noted that she had lost quite a bit of weight. Her arms were very thin, like a stick insect, she described. She also saw bruises on Lauren and asked Tracy about them. Tracy said that the dog had knocked the little girl down and she had fallen into a table. Just six months after Lauren began living in Tracy's home, her condition had deteriorated to such an extent that she was taken to see a doctor. Dr. Eamon Clark said that Lauren was brought to him for an exam in early February of 2000 and was suffering with nosebleeds, dizziness, headaches, and lethargy. He noted that her hair was falling out and he also found bruises on her. There were two larger bruises, one on her right cheek and another on her forearm. Tracy told the doctor that Lauren had fallen on the playground. The doctor made a notation in her records saying that she was, quote, a very pale child, unquote. He recommended that Lauren be taken to a specialist and wrote in his notes, we are unable to explain why this child is feeling so poorly at the moment. A few reasons why Lauren was feeling so poorly was because she was being subjected to mental, emotional, and physical abuse by her stepmother. Lauren was given very little food and had begun to lose weight rapidly as a result. Most days, Lauren was sent to bed as soon as she got home from school and without any dinner. When Tracy did feed her, Lauren was given scraps or even contaminated food. Tracy's son would later testify that he watched his mother put a bug in Tracy's soup, and forced her to eat a sandwich stuffed with hot peppers. Tracy also encouraged her children to pick on their little stepsister and even strike her. The abuse caused Lauren to regress, and she began wetting her bed. This infuriated Tracy, and she made Lauren stand close to the hot fireplace for lengthy periods of time to punish her. She would also be beaten for soiling her clothes in bed. Lauren's plight became so obvious that people began to call social services to report the suspected abuse. On March 14th, 
a neighbor later identified as Steve Arlington, called social services anonymously to report seeing bruises on Lauren Wright's face and neck. He also told the social worker that Lauren was always covered up in baggy, long-sleeved clothes, even on hot days. He suspected this was to hide even more injuries on the child. Not long after Arlington's call, another call was made to Norfolk Social Services. The anonymous woman shared her concerns about Lauren's physical and emotional well-being. Two caseworkers in the Norfolk office started an inquiry into this report. Claire Mann and Charlotte Coates interviewed Lauren's grandmother, Christine, at her home and then went to Lauren's school where they spoke to Tracy Wright. Finally, they spoke with Lauren herself. Her grandmother noted the changes she'd seen in Lauren and shared what her daughter-in-law said about how she'd come to have the bruises. Tracy repeated the story about the bully who pushed Lauren at school and that other bruises were caused by Lauren falling on the playground. The caseworkers made notes about Lauren's appearance at that time, writing, quote, She was a very endearing little thing and all her clothes were too big. They looked like hand-me-downs and were quite shabby. She was a very waif-like child. She had very poor quality thinning hair. Her skin was very pale. She had quite adult expression, unquote. They took Lauren to be evaluated at a health center. The doctor's examination revealed numerous bruises on her torso, arms, and legs. The doctor concluded that her injuries were inconsistent with Tracy's explanation of how they occurred and arranged for an appointment for Lauren to be seen by a pediatrician. At this point, with the doctor suspecting the child had been abused, a report should have been made to a children's welfare agency, and Lauren should have been removed from the home while the charge was being investigated. This did not happen. When asked directly how she had gotten the bruises, Lauren mimicked Tracy's words as if she'd been coached. She had been pushed by a bully, fell in the playground, and been knocked down by the dog and fell into a table. When asked about things at her home, Lauren assured doctors and caseworkers that everything was fine. She only spoke kindly about her father and stepmother and said she was happy at home. On March 21st, Lauren was seen by a pediatrician at North Cambridgeshire Hospital. After examining and talking to Tracy and Lauren, the doctor decided that Tracy was telling the truth when she said Lauren had fallen on the playground. Norfolk Social Services downgraded Lauren's case from a red alert to an amber alert, designating it as less serious. The caseworker simply contacted Lauren's school and told the administration there to keep an eye on her and contact them again should anything change. But more community members found reasons to be concerned about Lauren Wright. Now a third adult, Wendy Redman, a local postal worker, noticed extensive bruising all over Lauren's face and contacted the elementary school secretary to report this observation. She also contacted one of Lauren's aunts to share the information. On most of Lauren's face, there was bruising on both sides. It started at the neck. I have never seen bruising like that, Wendy Redmond would say. About a week later, the Norfolk Police Family Protection Unit contacted social services as a follow-up to the earlier investigation they were told that nothing conclusive was found in the medical exam Lauren had received. On April 12th, another anonymous call was placed to Norfolk Social Services. This would be the third anonymous call about Lauren placed to social services. The social worker who had been in charge of Lauren's case 
had left the agency, and the report went unanswered. No action was taken after this call. Then less than a week later, Tracy Wright received a letter from the Social Services Agency to arrange a home visit for May 8th. The new caseworker was on vacation, and May 8th was the soonest appointment they could schedule. By happenstance, another social services agency then came into the picture. On April 25th, Tracy Wright received a visit at her home by two social workers from Hertfordshire. Lauren's biological mother, Jennifer Bennett, had lost custody of her daughter when she was put on at-risk status after being abandoned in Turkey. Now she or her family was requesting permission for Lauren to visit. After seeing Lauren at home and talking to Tracy, these social workers contacted Norfolk Social Services to express their concerns. On May 2nd, without any response to their call, one of the Hertfordshire social workers sent a letter to Norfolk Social Services about what they had observed when visiting the girl and her family the previous week. By early May, no less than two dozen people had observed obvious signs of abuse on six-year-old Lauren Wright. Two teachers, a postal worker, four social service caseworkers, and three physicians, and at least three anonymous callers, had all seen, examined, or interviewed Lauren, and as concerned neighbor Steve Arlington put it, quote, you just knew something was wrong, unquote. Still, Lauren had not been thoroughly interviewed alone by a caseworker, and no attempt was made to remove her from her home. Lauren's school was out of session for a holiday break, but when school resumed, Lauren didn't return. Tracy said she was out sick with gastroenteritis. Lauren was homesick, very sick, but she was suffering from something much worse than an upset tummy. Lauren had been punched viciously in the stomach by her stepmother. The blow was so violent that part of Lauren's digestive system had collapsed. The little girl had been in agonizing pain for at least two days, vomiting and unable to eat or even hold down water. Her father saw her only briefly on Thursday, May 4th. She was in the bathroom, and although the pain she was in must have been excruciating, she only asked her father for a glass of water. He gave it to her and then left the house without another thought. Lauren continued to vomit and could barely walk or move, but Tracy didn't bother to take her to the doctor. On the morning of Saturday, May 6th, Lauren simply crawled into her bed and lay there, still uncomplaining, still not expecting anyone to pay attention to her. She knew no help was coming and that no one would save her. She quietly resigned herself to her fate, just as she always had. In September of 2001, Tracy and Treg Wright would begin their trial, facing charges for the responsibility in the death of Lauren Wright. Tracy Wright testified on her own behalf. She would claim that she had only ever smacked Lauren on the legs or the bum and denied ever hitting her in the face. She said that she yelled at her children occasionally and blamed her husband for not helping with the children. She said he drank too much and they argued quite often about this and about money. Sometimes the arguments became physical, she admitted. 
She said that if Lauren appeared to be dressed more scruffily than her biological children, that was only because Lauren liked to pick out her own clothes. Tracy Wright testified that she had a, quote, very good relationship, unquote, with her stepdaughter. She defended herself, saying, I loved Lauren. I did nothing to cause Lauren's injuries. I never deliberately hurt that child. She said she had not taken her to a doctor because she had no reason to believe she was sick. Tracy also said that she didn't know Lauren had so many bruises on her. She said that her two children were also suffering with a tummy bug at that time, and she thought that Lauren was no more ill than they were and didn't think any of them needed to see a doctor. As for Lauren's father, Craig Wright also took the stand and said he had no clue that his daughter was being abused. He said if he'd known, he would have immediately removed Lauren from the home. I did not see anything to give me concern, Craig testified. Tracy was always giving a good reason. I did not doubt her for one minute. She was loving and caring about me and Lauren and the other two kids. He was asked if he didn't notice that his daughter was in pain or distress the last time he saw her. Craig answered, I just thought she was weak because she hadn't had any food for two or three days. I did not know that she had that injury to her stomach. If I had known it, it would have been totally different. We would not be here now. But the trial star witness would shed light on what really took place in the Wright household in the months leading up to Lauren's death. Tracy's nine-year-old son was interviewed on videotape, which was played for the jury. In the 40-minute video, he told of other abuse his mother had inflicted on Lauren and him. Both he and Lauren were punched by Tracy, he said. His mother did not hit his younger sister. They were both punished by being made to stand in front of a hot coal furnace, quote, for a long time, unquote. He witnessed his mother putting bugs in Lauren's food. Lauren did not know they were in the food when she ate it. He also said that Lauren was forced to stand still in the living room at night until her father finally came home. She said that Lauren's father sometimes slapped Lauren on the bum. His most damning statement was regarding what he'd observed on the morning of Saturday, May 6th. The day Lauren died, I remember a mum punching her in the belly two times. I was going to the toilet, and I seen mummy punch her in the belly two times, the boy testified. The police who investigated Lauren's death called Tracy Wright, quote, a sadistic and vile abuser who mounted a campaign of physical and emotional abuse against a defenseless child, unquote. Craig and Tracy Wright were both found guilty of manslaughter and willful neglect. Upon sentencing Tracy, the judge said, You found that where you were able to have time off every other weekend, when your two went to their father, that was now less likely to happen, for at those times you were likely to be looking after Craig's daughter while he was fishing or down at the pub, spending an arguably undue share of limited household income on his liquid pleasures. That you may have felt frustrated is understandable. What is unforgivable is that you chose to vent your frustration on Lauren. Judge Meller said Tracy Wright's abuse of Lauren was spiteful and cowardly. When one considers the cruelty of your conduct towards that little girl, it is, if anything, more difficult to bear the accounts of the spiteful ways in which you isolated, scapegoated, and humiliated Lauren than it is to contemplate your violence towards her, which may often, at least, have been spontaneous rather than calculated. It is a chilling measure of her despair and isolation and her desperation for the affection of someone 
that that little girl never uttered a word of complaint about your conduct. In a sense, in the home of her immediate family, with relatives next door and elsewhere in the village, she died as much alone as if she were in a desert. As for Lauren's father, the judge said that there was never any suggestion that Craig himself had assaulted Lauren, but he also had not protected her. He called Craig Wright the most inadequate of fathers and reminded him that as her parent, it was his responsibility to see to her welfare and ensure that she was safe and cared for. Tracy Wright was sentenced to 15 years in prison. She would be required to serve a minimum of seven and a half years before she could apply for parole. Craig Wright was sentenced to three years. He served 18 months and was released. Tracy Wright was a marked woman when she entered prison, classified as the worst type of criminal, one who harms children. She was attacked by other inmates, including having boiling water poured on her while she was awaiting her sentencing hearing. Her attorney filed for an appeal for her sentence to be reduced, as she was concerned for the safety of her client should she be required to spend multiple years in prison. Her appeal was rejected. From birth, everyone failed Lauren Wright. Her mother neglected, verbally abused, and abandoned her. Her father ignored her and left her in the hands of a sadistic woman. Strangers took more notice of the little girl's suffering than did her own family members. But even when they tried to intervene and help the child, the agencies responsible for keeping children safe failed her as well. Afterwards, there was more than enough blame to go around. A senior social worker for Norfolk Social Services resigned and was reported to be so distraught over her failure to save Lauren Wright that she considered suicide. A member of Parliament, Gillian Shepard, called for a public inquiry in the social service care procedures across Norfolk. Lauren's aunt, Don Dos Santos, also called for an inquiry, wanting answers as to how Lauren wasn't removed from the home when so many had reported the suspected abuse. A Hartfordshire City Council spokesperson said that when Lauren moved to Norfolk in May of 1997, she was still on Hartfordshire's Social Service Child Protection Register. The Norfolk Social Service Agency was not told of her arrival in that county or her status as an at-risk child. Procedures were not followed that would have required Lauren's case to be continued and monitored after the family's relocation to Norfolk. In addition, a full social history of all members of Lauren's family and extended family should have been taken and recorded by caseworkers before Lauren was allowed to live with her father alone or with his new wife. Her grandmother had been made her de facto guardian after the abandonment case was filed against Lauren's mother. As a result of Lauren's case, procedures were changed and new safeguards were put into place to ensure that other children would not suffer the same fate in the future. The UK's National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children spokesperson Mary Marsh said, quote, Child protection is everyone's responsibility. It is not helpful to pin the blame on individuals. Effective child protection requires a good partnership between professionals and members of the public, unquote. She called the public response to Lauren's case woefully inadequate. This seems a bit hypocritical. To call it unfair or unhelpful to pin the blame on individuals seems designed to absolve representatives of the various government agencies who were involved in overseeing Lauren Wright's case. It was individual citizens who did the most and tried the hardest to get help for Lauren. 
The anonymous callers, community members, and teachers who reported their suspicions of abuse thought they were doing the right thing and that once the correct authorities were notified, procedures would be followed to ensure the child's safety. Instead, it seemed that the buck continued to be passed from one person and agency to another, with no one taking responsibility for the welfare of Lauren Wright. As a result, she was trapped with a violent and sadistic stepmother who ultimately caused her death. All we can do is hope that lessons were learned by those who take an oath or whose job it is to make sure children are protected. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Next week, we'll continue the series Step Monsters. But on the next episode, I'll flip the script a little bit to tell you about a case where kids take revenge on an abusive step-parent. If you haven't listened to the latest episode of my other podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, it's available now. On that episode, I share a discussion about the most buzzed-about true crime documentary right now, The Tiger King. Look for Let's Talk About True Crime on your favorite podcast app or click on the link in the show notes to listen. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And our original theme song is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. I hope you're all doing well, staying healthy, and until next time, be especially good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.